0: So tonight, in this kind of changeover period, I thought it would be story time. But uh, really what I want to talk about, we don't hear so much about the women in the history of the time of the Buddha and also now. So I want to talk about um, some of the nuns who were enlightened nuns at the time of the Buddha. There's, uh, and, and also some nuns that I know today that kind of remind me kind of similar stories. <laughs> so story time, but it's, I feel it's really important to uh, remember, to know that when we, we it, there's a quite a, um, a rich uh, sp- place in the text where there's poems from there's uh, poems from enlightened monks and poems from enlightened nuns. And then we have a little bit of the story about some of the nuns. And it's really cool to read them, because it really brings them alive. Just as when you, if you read the suttas, you might think it feels very dry and dull. But you start to get a sense of the personalities of the different monks. And so also with some of these nuns. So I only have time to pick out a very, very few just to give you a sense of the range. But what I love about it is it gives me, um, I really feel like I can relate different personalities, different situations in life before they became nuns, different uh, ways that they awoke quickly, slowly, good horse, bad horse, you know, all of that. It's very accessible to how we are today. And it brings it alive for me anyway. from just being some distant, oh, yeah, and there were some women too, you know, kind of fluffing along, doing their best. (laughs) It's not like that at all. You know, it really gives a sense of the the power of the women just as much as the men yesterday and today. So first, I want to read a translation by Andy Olenski from the Study Center. Um, He likes to translate uh, poems from Polly to English. And this is a poem of a nun. Um, the nunsoma Soma uh, with Mara and Mara is the personification of delusion the personification of kalesa of temptation and there's often these dialog poems with both nuns and monks and the buddha where Mara comes and tries to say what are you doing you're wasting your time you're too stupid you'll never do it whatever he thinks will you know seduce them so this is one of that so she enters this grove to practice And Mara comes and wants to make her waver and abandon her commitment. So Mara says, that which can be attained by seers, the place so hard to arrive at, women are not able to reach since they lack sufficient wisdom. And so Soma thinks, you know, who is this? I see you, Mara, you know. And she answers, I mean, she's not thrown off at all. She says, what difference does being a woman or a man make when the mind is well composed, when knowledge is proceeding on, when one rightly sees into Dhamma? Indeed, for one to whom the question arises, am I a man or a woman, or even am I something at all? To them alone is Mara fit to talk. <laughs> <laughs> so you guys will get these women, awakened women, they're tough and clear and strong, just as equally as the men. And as Andy says, you know, he thinks this is a definitive statement in the Buddhist tradition about the equality of the sexes in terms of awakening. So these women who we have poems from, of course, we only have poems from the enlightened ones, uh, same with the monks. And they've come from all walks of life, and they manifest their awakening. They live in the nuns in all different ways. There's not one way to be, either before you begin your practice or after. Some became great teachers, well known. Some lived quiet um, lives of a of a hermit. Some were just happy to kind of run the community or just live quiet in the community. You know, some were reclusive, just just as with the monks, living in all different ways. So to talk about, one has to start with um, the the woman who's kind of like the mother of the non sangha. You can't really skip her, um, Mahapajapati Gotami, who was the aunt and stepmother of Siddhartha before he became the Buddha, because his mother died when he was a week old, and he was his mother was a queen married to King Suddhodana, and her younger sister. P- Mahapajapati Gotami was also married to the king. The kings had various wives at that time. So she really raised um, Siddhanta as her own son. And so, and also his son, his son, Rahula. So after he'd gone and become the Buddha and had left, um, she was, of course, living with her husband, the king. And at this period, Many of the people in the Buddhist, many of the men in the Buddhist family were leaving to become monks, and women at this time in this society were were uh, defined. Their social status was defined by their male relationship. So they were, you know, somebody's daughter, somebody's wife, somebody's mother, son's mother. You know. So when her husband, King Suddhodana, died. And then her son also went off to become a monk. Buddha was already the Buddha. And then there was a period where um, both sides of the Buddha's family, the Sakyans and the Kolya, the two clans, they got into a battle over water rights of a river. I think I mentioned this once. And they had a big battle, and so again, a lot of men were killed. Then the Buddha came to try to... um, Helped them come to an end of it. He gave such an inspiring Dharma talk that it ended the conflict, but then a lot of the men who weren't killed, they also went off and became monks with the Buddha. So it was actually at this time that Pajapati, being the queen, so kind of a natural leader, she and many other women were actually left without male relatives. So they started thinking, well, why don't we too? We also want to. You know, renounce the world and wake up, not just because of there's nothing else to do, which sometimes that's why people <laughs> ordain as monks and nuns even today. But it was really kind of, yes, we too want. And at that time, there was no um, order of nuns. And as I think we've said at that period in India, there were various wandering ascetic orders and just loose canons <laughs> wandering around being ascetic as well. But the orders were all those of men. It was kind of not done in the society. You know, it was, in a way, an unspoken way seen as, as really a threat to society to begin to set up an order of renunciate women. Because, of course, the women hold the society together. So no, we can't do that. So anyway, Mahapajapati went to the Buddha and asked him very, very sincerely, you know, that she would like to ordain. And he listened. but. He said, No, sorry, go to me. Please don't set your heart on women being allowed to do this. And he, she asked the requisite three times, after which, if the Buddha's ever going to say yes, he would. And, she, and he didn't. He still said no. And then he well, took his bowl and went with his monks to another place on their regular tour, like 100 miles away or so. So she, Pajapati, and there were quite a few women with her They cut off their hair, put on saffron-colored robes, and barefoot followed the Buddha and the men to the next town, to Vesali. So they weren't so used to walking around barefoot on the roads as the monks were. So it said when, when she got to Vesali with a number of Sakyan women, and she was standing outside the hall where the Buddha was teaching, and it said she arrived there with swollen feet, and covered with dust and looking very pitiful and crying. And this is where Ananda steps in. Ananda is also a cousin of the Buddha, so in some way also related to Gotama. They were all related back then. It wasn't such a huge scene. And Ananda being the Buddha's attendant for 25 years, he's probably, of all the monks if you read, he comes across as the, the most kind of human of all of them. He's kind, he's friendly, he's hes the Buddha's attendant, but whereas sometimes these days if you see a big, a big kind of spiritual person, their attendant seems to serve the function of keeping people away, Ananda served the function of trying to get as many people in to hear the Dhamma from the Buddha as possible, and so he's always kind. So he intervenes here at this point. And he again asked, he said, it would be good, Lord, if women were to have permission to do this. And again, the Buddha says no to Ananda. Don't set your heart on this. So Ananda thought, let me try asking in another way. He says, are women able, when they have entered into homelessness, to realize the fruits of stream entry, once returning, non-returning, and arhanship? So These are the levels of awakening. And the Buddha says, yes. Ananda, they are able. And it's really clear all through there's absolutely no difference in potential for awakening. So then, Ananda goes on to say, since they can realize perfection, and since Pachapati was of great service to you, she was your aunt, your nurse, your foster mother, She even suckled you at her breast. It would be good if women could be allowed to enter into homelessness. (laughs) And the Buddha goes, okay, all right, okay, okay. (laughs) And at this point began the um, Sangha of Bhikkhunis. So, what really comes across, of course, is within the structure of the time, Pajapati was clearly a woman of huge faith. Faith and awakening, but also real determination. You know, a real willingness—not to just um, go along with what she's told, which is sort of how women were supposed to be at the time. You know, she should just agree. But it was a very bold request, and she didn't just uh, say, "Okay, well, I'll just give it up and go back home." She was really clear and strong in her faith, in her determination. Um, and in her her wanting to wake up. So she became really the mother of the Bhikkhuni sangha, you could say. And from the time that she and all these other women were ordained, she was one of the, well, obviously she was the first teacher, (laughs) but also a very um, very powerful and very popular teacher. Many, many women came to her. So in a way, she's... When she died, she said to have lived to be 120 years old. And when she died, the Buddha came to be with her. And it is said, and this is in the mythology, that there were earthquakes and flowers falling from the sky. And second only to the death of a Buddha was there all this um, miracles that occurred on the earth to mark her passing. So kind of just a way of acknowledging the strength of who she was and what she did. So, I want to just read a little her poem. She says, her poem says, Homage to you, Buddha, best of all beings, who set me and many others free from pain. All pain is understood, the cause, the craving, is dried up. The Noble Eightfold Way unfolds. I have reached the state where everything stops. I have been mother son, father, brother, grandmother. Knowing nothing of the truth, I journeyed on. But I have seen the blessed one. This is my last body. And I will not go from birth to birth again. Look at all the disciples all together, their energy, their sincere effort. This is true homage to the Buddhas." That's you you know. Disciples together with your energy and your sincere effort, it's homage to all the Buddhas and the potential Buddhas that each of us are. And I get a sense from her of how she's really kind of the holder of the community, that what she looks out and sees is how all the disciples are paying homage through their sincere practice. So just as in that time, the societal structure really held women in a certain place, but the Buddha recognized in terms of awakening, in terms of practice, it's possible there's absolutely no difference between men and women. That was already quite radical. And once he agreed to have the Sangha, as I said, just as with the men, so with the women. He kept them quite separate which seemed really essential in those days. It wasn't like, you know, mixing up the, 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 the bhikkhunis had their monasteries, nunneries, and the bhikkhus had theirs. The bhikkhunis had their teachers. I mean, they could come and hear the Buddha, and then some of the monks would go and also teach with the bhikkhunis, but they had their own systems. And so within the bhikkhuni order, the same as with the monks, as I mentioned one morning, the, the class structure of India at that time was absolutely rigid whatever caste you were born into, that's the caste you had to live in your whole life and they couldn't mix. And there was one really low caste called untouchables where you couldn't, if you were from a higher caste, you couldn't even take water from an untouchable person's hands. That stratified. And once in the Sangha of either nuns or monks, the Buddha completely did away with that. You know, that the only sense of hierarchy was within the the nuns when you ordained. So each um, person who came in, every ordained nun was senior who had already been there. Same with the monks. It didn't matter if the one who came in had been a queen, and the one who ordained two minutes before her had been uh, a prostitute or a beggar. It didn't matter. The prostitute, the beggar, was senior to the queen. So this is like radical in that time. <laughs> so who I wanted to mention today that came to mind, when I was just kind of thinking who came to mind with these stories, is a Thai woman named Bakuni Damananda. She, uh, her, her Thai name was Chatsuman Kabulsing. She was a professor in a uh, university in Bangkok. And when she was in her 50s, you must know, I don't want to go too much into the politics, but in Burma and Thailand, the Bhikkhuni order has fallen away, and the nuns are only having eight or ten precepts, so they're not like on a parody. And without getting into the politics, it's believed in the political system, and the the, the monkhood is mixed up with the political system to some degree in Thailand and Burma that bhikkhunis to be ordained have to have bhikkhunis in, in the ceremony. And since there are no bhikkhunis, they can't ordain new ones. And it goes like that. And they don't recognize the Mahayana. So some do and some don't. So bhikkhuni Dhammananda some years ago went to um, Sri Lanka, where there are bhikkhunis who have been ordained in the Mahayana. And she came back to Thailand and began to open a monastery, a nunnery. Now this is really politically, more than a hot potato, right? But she uh, is very well known, as was quite a scholar, so she wasn't just some person they could just, you know, ignore or mistreat. This is an article, actually, this is from years ago, from the New York Times, talking about it. And the government and conservative monks and laymen accuse her of intentionally creating problems to further erode the religion, which is plagued in this nation by numerous sex and money scandals in recent years. Just like everything, there's good monks and bad monks, and good nuns and bad nuns. So don't be all, um, what's the word? Don't be too idealistic. (laughs) But anyway, she said, and this is what she said. It's great. Uh, She said, this is a conflict between ignorance and right understanding. And she quotes the Buddha who said very often that the health of the Sangha, the health of the Buddha Sasana surviving in the world, depends on four pillars: male and female ordained people, and male and female lay people. These are the four pillars of the Buddha sasana. And so she said, you know, I'm not trying to cause trouble. I just hope that allowing female ordination as bhikkhunis will strengthen women's status, strengthen the Buddhism. And she has no plans to seek official recognition. She said, the recognition comes after trust. I will prove that bhikkhunis are really a boon to Thai Buddhism. This is my mission in life. So now she has this huge center outside of Bangkok. I was on the web page last year sometime. She speaks English really well. She has talks online. And she's been ordaining temporary bhikkhunis, like you know tons at a time. So she's just in her not-so-quiet way, but steady way. She really is, in a way, trying to be the mother of the new birth of bhikkhuni sangha in Thailand. So this is someone who's quite active today, sort of a similar way to Mahapajapati. So back to the Buddha's time. The kind of women and the stories of the women, how they became nuns, they're all very different. So first I want to tell another story of a woman named Dhammadina, who after she became a nun was recognized by the Buddha as the foremost in teaching the Dhamma, the foremost in expounding the Dhamma, in preaching. And um, she was the wife of a man named Wisaka, a very important man in Rajagaha. They were quite well off. Not a king, a businessman, but quite well off. And they had what was a very happy marriage. And there's there's plenty of other nuns that had really unhappy, you know, oppressive marriages and wanted to become nuns for that reason. Of course, their husbands wouldn't let them. But anyway, she had a happy marriage. But one day her husband had been out and had heard the Buddha teach for the first time. And when he came home to lunch, usually he would come in and they would chat. They would sit down and eat together. But he just walked by her without saying anything. And then her reaction, as it's in the story, is so like typical. She goes, oh, he's angry. What did I do? Why is he angry at me? You know. And she got all worried. Um, but then he called her and said, no, no, he wasn't angry. But he was so inspired by hearing the Buddha teaching, he'd had some kind of a realization. And he decided he was going to renounce the world and become a monk. So he said, I'll give you all my wealth. You know, you can stay here with my wealth. You can go back to your family, you know, really take care of you. But I'm going off to ordain with the Buddha. So she thought about it. She'd never even occurred to her that this was a possibility before. But she said, you know what? I want to do that too. I also want to ordain. So he said, "Great!" and he like sent her off with great fanfare, you know, in a golden palanquin that you're carried, you know, and sent her off in all this state to become a nun. And so she did. She went off, practiced intensively, became an arhat, and you know was this great teacher. And then she was going back to Rajagaha where lo and behold, it turned out her husband never went to become a monk after all. <laughs> he was still just hanging out there in Rajagaha, Gaha. <laughs> but, but he was still really interested in the Dhamma. She just had more you know, more energy and more um, faith. But he was very interested. So when she... And this is a sutta. This isn't just a poem in the Terigata, but it's actually a whole sutta in the Majjhima Nikaya. Where she comes back to Rajagaha, and her husband, her former husband, Wisaka comes up, and he's eagerly asking her all these questions—very subtle questions, just one after the other after the other, you know—and um, she's answering them as best she can, and uh, he's just—he's just pounding her with questions. He's going, uh, you know. She says, meditation is the focusing of the heart. And he says, "Well, what are its outward signs? She says, its outward signs are the presence of four kinds of attention. Four kinds of right effort are needed. And he kept on going. He kept on going. And finally she said, and this is a whole sutta, you will never get to the end of your questionings. You know. So go, if you have more questions, go and ask the Buddha. So he went. And of course, when you've been questioning another monk or nun, you always go and report to the Buddha what you asked, what they said. So he did that. And this, as the Buddha said, the Buddha praised Dhamma Dina saying, Dhamma Dina possesses learning and great wisdom. Had you asked me, I would have answered exactly as she did. Her answer was correct, and you should treasure it accordingly. And this is actually a very high, not just praise, but it's a statement. They call it a Buddha Vachana, the word of the Buddha, which is really a rare example of saying there's an equivalence in this statement between her wisdom and the Buddha's wisdom. It's a very, very strong statement of her. So that's Dhammadina. And the person that it reminds me of that I wanted to tell you about is a nun uh, who lives in Burma today. Her name is Daw I've met her quite a few times. She is a very, very serene, calm, very strong person. She's maybe mid-40s, I would say. She's a teacher in the tradition of Mogok Sayadaw tradition. It's a different um, technique and a different emphasis from the Mahasi Sayadaw tradition. Those are probably the two main strands of styles of meditation in, of Vipassana in Burma. And then Pog Sayadaw is maybe the third. So she, has, she lives in a monastery where the a Sayadaw, a male uh, monk, is the abbot. But she is really the well-known one, the famous one, Dayuzna. People come from all over to ask her questions, to ask her advice, to offer her. And she's a, a very strong teacher. As I said, very calm. I've never seen her flustered or upset. She can. Joking around is too strong. But she can be very friendly and loving. You know, She has these dogs that bark like crazy all around when you come. And they're just barking, barking, barking. And she just And they come and be quiet, but only for her, not for anybody else in the monastery. And she was telling us once her story. And she wanted to become a nun. And her parents wouldn't let her. And finally, they agreed when she was about 19, but only for a year. But after a year she really wanted to stay and her father was really mean to her, actually even beat her trying to get her to stop being a nun. But her will was so strong and her commitment and her faith was so strong and she just loved the Dharma and loves practicing and loves sharing. You can just feel this sense of really of power and strength and calm that's just kind of inside of her, how she is. She kind of emanates that. And she just loves the dharma. But she has amazing energy. So we went to visit her one time. It was her birthday, uh, which is often the people will offer a big feast. So we went, and she's, she's cooking. She's offering a feast to everyone in the monastery. She's cooking it, and she's cooking the dessert. And then out of, this, out of the meditation hall, they come about... One to 200 yogis, men and women yogis. Oh, yeah, by the way, she's teaching a 10-day retreat to these yogis. Just her. The Sayadaw wasn't teaching. She's teaching it. Making this meal, hanging out with all the visitors. That's what she's like. It's it's not that common for a a nun to be teaching huge retreats to mixed populations like that. It's a statement of the power of her understanding. And then after... um, The cyclone Nargis, which was in uh, three years ago, which really um, was sort of like Katrina here in in the southwestern part of Burma. Just hundreds of villages were destroyed. People died. uh, Lots of um, young kids were orphaned, or their parents lost all their way to support themselves. And so she just got the clear message in herself that she's in Yangon, that she needed to start a school for orphaned and poor girls, just for girls. And she is such a force of nature. She didn't just like build a little shack, which some other nuns we know have done. She, she, she does have a few more resources because she's so well-known. She starts raising money. She's building this huge, she did build, this huge three-story building she said she wants to make it a school that's really good. So she's hiring really good teachers, paying them much more than the public school pays the teachers. And she had like 200 girls, from young all the way up to 10th standard, which is like graduating from high school, which not that many Burmese kids get to. And now she's even um, hiring some computer experts and looking for computers to help the, of the few girls who finish the 10th standard to learn some more. Amazing. And this is all on Donna. She has very precise budget. She showed us her budget. I mean, our friend Arianani translated it. It was all in Burmese. Very precise, complex as it would be for such, because half of the girls live there. So it's not only the building and the teachers and the materials, it's the food and the clothing. And it's all on Donna. So, for instance, we came and gave her from some of the Donna various people had offered us, maybe two or $300. And she said, oh, this is great. Now I can you know, meet my payroll this month. And it's like month to month. She needs something like 300000 shot a month, which is neighborhood of $300 to us, but that's really a lot of money over there. Every month she needs that. And... She's just completely serene, trusting it's going to come. Oh, great. Okay, good. I can pay the teachers this month. And she knew if it hadn't been us, it would have come from somewhere else. And she's still teaching retreats, and she's still seeing people. And this is just one example of a really powerful woman teacher who's also trying to support you know, young girls as well as she can. And she's kind of fun to hang out with. She told us this last time, there's just a few of us, and she was talking in Burmese, so she was really speaking from her heart. So she was talking about this school and how she, of course, wanted to help the young girls who didn't have parents, didn't have a way to schooling. But she said, and she just seemed so sincere, she said, of course, my motivation in all of this is the Dhamma. Behind everything I do is the love of awakening and wanting to be able to offer to these girls the chance to really understand the Dhamma and awaken themselves. Everything else is extra, but that's why I do everything that I do. It's really She's really quite an amazing person. So that's Doryuzanath. There's many of the nuns in the suttas who became nuns, not like Dhammadina, just like, oh, yeah, sure, why not, but from amazing, really intense suffering in their life, where they're just at their last wit's end. And of course, afterwards, when they awaken, they have so much compassion and understanding of suffering that they become powerful teachers for other women in suffering. So I'm going to really, really condense this story. But this this is like one of these out there stories where you think it couldn't get any worse and then it gets worse, and you think it couldn't get any worse and then it gets worse. So this woman was named Patachara from a well-to-do family, but she fell in love with a servant. You know, and of course there's arranged marriages, but she fell in love with a servant and they ran away and got married, which is just beyond not done. So they had to go to another town and never see her family again. But when she got pregnant, she wanted to go, go back and see her family. But understandably, her husband wasn't so thrilled with that idea. So he put it off, put it off, and she had the baby. Second time she gets pregnant, same thing. So finally, he keeps putting off. He doesn't want to go. But finally, she's just about to have the baby, and they start walking you know, to the other village. So she's some distance, maybe a couple of days walk. And she was too pregnant, so she starts to go into labor in the middle of a field, and it's about to start a storming, so her husband goes off to get leaves and brush and build a shelter, but he gets bitten by a poisonous viper and dies. So she's lying there having the baby. She doesn't know what happened to him. So she has the baby, stays there, and then she doesn't know what to do. The next day she gets up and starts walking, finds his body filled with grief, really nothing to do but walk on to her family. So because it had rained so much, she comes to a river that's way swollen, way swollen. And so she's like, how can I get across this river with the newborn baby and her little two-year-old, whatever? So she thinks, okay, I'll leave the baby, I'll walk across with the two-year-old and then come back. Oh, yeah, you're right. The two-year-old gets swept away. She's completely losing it. She looks back and a big bird of prey has come down and taken the little baby while she's in the river. So she's, you know pretty much losing it, but goes on to her family's village and she gets there and she sees this smoke rising up and she says to someone, where's my my parents and my brother? And the person says, ask me anything else. Don't ask me that. She said, that's the only thing I want to know. So they had all just died in a fire. So you see, it couldn't get worse. So she went crazy. I mean, she just went completely mad. And her name... um, Patichara means cloak walker. She, her clothes just dropped off. She's just walking in circles. She's just mad. And people, being how people can be, would chase her away and throw clods of dirt at her and stuff. then wander her around. And at one point, um, she came to where the Buddha was preaching. And the people tried to push her away, you know, make her go away. She's naked. She's embarrassing. She's crazy. But the Buddha he went and got in her way. And he went deliberately up to her and said, sister, recover your presence of mind. And she did. And then someone gave her a cloak so she wasn't naked. And then she said, help me, please, help me. And out poured her whole story. And it said that the Buddha said, and this is really like this kind of powerful teaching, you know, oh, you poor thing. He said, don't think you have come to someone who can help with that. In your many lives, you have shed more tears for the dead than the water in the four oceans." And this actually calmed her down a little bit. And then he went on and gave more teachings about when we ourselves die, no one else can help us. No one can be with us. Even when we're alive in the depth of our suffering, even our kin, our family cannot take our suffering away from us. This is how it is. And then he preached the Dhamma, and she, really, you know, was back in her right mind. He said, "Yes, may I become a nun?" So, and this I like. He says, "Sure." He takes her. He goes with her to the Sangha of Bhikkhunis, because the son and then the Sangha of Bhikkhunis ordained her. And she had to practice for a while. She wasn't one of these in five minutes. Completely woke up, but she became obviously a very powerful teacher. It said that she's the one who's mentioned the most in other poems as someone who's helped. And her awakening poem, I like it because it describes her moment of awakening. So I feel the immediacy of it, also that it wasn't so easy. She says, when they plow their fields and sow seeds in the earth, when they care for their wives and their children, Young Brahmins find riches. But I've done everything right. I've followed the rule of my teacher. I'm not lazy or proud. Why haven't I found peace? Can you relate? Bathing my feet, I watched the bathwater spill down the slope. I concentrated my mind the way you train a good horse. Then I took a lamp and went into my cell checked the bed, and sat down on it. I took a needle and pushed the wick down. When the lamp went out, my mind was freed. It's also, she wasn't in meditation. She was walking into her room, sitting on her bed, pushing the wick down on her lamp, just being here. Her mind was freed. and She became a great teacher for those in suffering. Here's one of uh, the poems by another woman named Chanda that she helped. I was in a bad way, a widow, no children, no friends, no relations to give me food and clothes. I was a beggar with a bowl and stick and wandered house to house in the heat and cold for seven years. But I met a nun who had food and drink. And I went up to her and said, take me into the homeless life. She was Patichara. Out of pity, she guided me in leaving home, encouraged me, and urged me to the highest goal. I took her advice. It wasn't wasted. There are no obsessions in my mind. Get that food and drink. The first thing Patachara did was feed her. She was hungry and ragged and cold, and she fed her, and then taught her the Dhamma and supported her. So metta and karuna, really from the suffering, and then the really straight teachings. You know, it's a, it's a great one-two combination. <laughs> and if you want to think of a current day person, she wasn't a nun, but Deepa Ma is absolutely the best example of exactly this combination. I mean, I can only incredibly shorten it, of, of be, becoming a practitioner and awakening through the incredible suffering in her life that took her almost to the point of death and madness, and then becoming such a loving and really strong teacher. So really, really long story short. I mean, Guy mentioned her the other the other night, so you know that we knew her. but she, a um, little Indian lady, married to an Indian man, a very loving marriage, but for maybe 20 years they had no children, which is, you know, that was really about having children. And they had moved to Burma. The husband was working in Burma. And finally, after 20 years, she got pregnant, but the, the baby died. And then she got pregnant again, and Deepa was born, who survived. Then she got pregnant again, and the baby was born and died very soon. And she went into such a depression, actually started having heart problems, and then her husband died. And she went into such, like, not just depression, but so sick with her heart that it said she was just in bed. She could hardly get out of bed, like, for months, for years, could barely take care of her daughter, was really on the point of death. And she had wanted to go to the Mahasi Center to meditate when she she was married. But her husband always said, wait till you're older. But finally, she was on the point of going crazy and dying, nothing else to do. And it said she finally went to the Mahasi Center, said she was so weak at one point that she almost had to crawl up the steps to get into the center to sit. And she starts sitting. Of course, she's one of these in you know, one week. She had such strong samadhi and such amazing paramis that she had uh, some enlightenment experience within a week. You know, went home, took care of her daughter Deepa, went back again after a while. So amazing, amazing paramis. But this is, she really transformed. She had very, very deep um, depth of awakening. So after some time of her practice, those who knew Deepa Ma were fascinated by her transformation. She had changed from a sickly, dependent, grief-stricken woman into a healthy, independent, radiant being. Deepa Ma herself said, You have seen me. I was disheartened and broken down due to the loss of my husband and children and due to disease. I suffered so much. I could not walk properly. But now, how are you finding me? All my disease is gone. I am refreshed, and there is nothing in my mind. There is no sorrow, no grief. I am quite happy. If you come to meditate, you will also be happy. There is no magic. Only follow the instructions. That might be our problem. (laughs) (laughs) Only follow the instruction. Okay. so she has some paramis. We'll give her that. so amazing suffering, leading to you know really quick awakening in her part. And then, as I think Guy was saying, she was renowned for just beaming love, just being so filled with love for whoever. But not only love, this really straight teaching as well. The first thing is she was really clear that it's not just about sitting meditation. It's not just about being on retreat, that waking up, that the practice is about everything we do. She was really clear. So she didn't become a nun. She had Deepa, and she went back to India, and they lived together in this tiny little one-room apartment in Calcutta for the whole rest of her life with Deepa and Deepa's son. And she would just welcome anyone who came all day, every day, and teach them. She said, as long as they want to come, let me share the Dhamma with them. She was, again, like a mother to all. Of the Dhamma, she said, "This is one example of how she believed that awakening is possible in any environment." She devised practices that her students could do at home. So, one woman who was trying to raise six young children alone—no way she could even sit down and meditate. Never mind go to a meditation center. So, this is one practice. Deepa Ma taught the woman to notice very steadily the sucking sensation of the infant at her breast with complete presence of mind for the duration of each nursing period. This amounted to hours each day, and as Deepama had hoped, Malati attained the first stage of enlightenment without ever leaving her home." (laughs) Cool, huh? We got no excuse. So this is love and commitment, but also she was really strong in her teaching no mincing words. This is another story from uh, another Indian woman who was one of her students, Sudipti. And this is very straight. When my son died in 1984, Deepama shocked me with her words. It was a hard teaching I have not forgotten. She said, today your son has gone from this world. Why are you shocked? Everything is impermanent. Your life is impermanent. Your husband is impermanent. Your son is impermanent. Everything is impermanent. Your money is impermanent. Your building is impermanent. There is nothing that is permanent. When you are alive, you might think, this is my daughter. This is my husband. This is my property. This car belongs to me. But when you are dead, nothing is yours. Sudipti, You think you are a serious meditator, but you must really learn that everything is impermanent. Coming from someone who knows and from a field of boundless metta, it's not like it's easy to hear, but the conditions are there to let it in. And it's really, really powerful to just to be in the presence of someone with this degree of compassion and this level of understanding and the ability to share it. Then one other suffering story from another nun I know. Not not such a brilliant attained person and not a known teacher, but one who's a representative, I would say, of many, many of the nuns in Burma who have Enormous purity and faith and um, compassion and dedication, you know and I'm sure it's the same from the time of the Buddha. most of the nuns and most of the nuns we don't know and the monks we don't know anything about, but enormously dedicated fields of purity and wisdom. So this nun, her name is um, Uttara Tengi, and her younger sister is Uttama Tengi, and they have a, a little nunnery that uh, near one of the meditation centers where I sit. And again, after the, after the, um, the cyclone, Nargis, um, the, a lot of, nun, of nuns moved to this area in the outskirts of Yangon and started, they would get a little bit of land that someone would buy for them. And they would build, so these two nuns, with the help of their brother, their actual brother, built for themselves this little like shacky nunnery. It's like a the, the walls are plated bamboo, which lasts about a year, and the floor is plated bamboo, which lasts six months as a floor and they just suddenly show up there, these two sisters and ten little girls that are nuns. So we got to know them, and we got to know them because when we you know we were going around and trying to see what some of these there's lots of nuns in this area, what they needed, and offering support to the ones that just somehow through their vibe or through talking with them, felt really sincere and some, some sense of um, you know purity and, and uh, commitment. And they just seemed such a sense of love and purity when we would hang out in their little place that we just got to know them better and offering them support. And then we came to know their story. Uh, again, because we were with Aryanani, who can speak Burmese and translate. It really helps. So, Utara Uttara Tangi, who is the older one, and she just has this brightness. You can just feel. You're just drawn to her. You just kind of light up. She uh, and her sister, and they had some other sisters and brothers, were living down in this delta area. And their family was small farmers, but okay, well enough off, could hire a few helpers. But slowly over the past few years, they'd, they'd kind of gotten poorer. She didn't really say why, as have many people in Burma. But they still had their land, and they were still working. But she began in her late teens to develop some kind of illness. No one knew why, but she was getting weaker and weaker and weaker. And after some time, she was just in bed all the time. And uh, she couldn't work, but the family was also losing. They were selling their jewelry to try and get doctors and find out how to take care of her. And she said she got so weak, as to the point where if her arm was lying next to her on the bed, she couldn't lift it up and put it on her chest, you know, and she could hardly even hardly talk because she was so weak. But she heard her parents talking and saying, well, we have nothing else, but we, we need to get more money to, to take care of her, so we need to sell our house. And she heard them. They didn't know she heard. She said, no, 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 no way. I want to be, let me become a nun. Then you don't have to take care of me. But instead of saying, oh, yeah, good idea, the parents said, no, no, we don't want you to become a nun. No, please, let us take care of you. But she insisted. So they said, well, only if your younger sister <laughs> becomes a nun with you can you become a nun. The sister was sitting there. So they said, well, how did you feel about that? She said, oh, I always wanted to become a nun, you know, so this was great for me. So there was a a monk in that village that they really respected, so he agreed to ordain them. And she said, first, on the first day after she became a nun, within two days, she got so much strength back that she could start walking. Just two days after becoming a nun, and she could start talking. And she just got better and better and better. I was telling this to Jack Cornfield. He goes, well, what she needed was good therapy. Then he stopped them and he goes, oh, I guess she did get that. <laughs> <laughs> and so. Just a side story, we were in their little, their little you know, house, and every nunnery, every monastery, is going to have a little shrine area with a Buddha statue and flowers, and they had this beautiful little shrine where they would bow and do their chanting every morning with the little nuns that they were teaching. Um, and she said, do you see that Buddha statue, which is a sweet little Buddha statue. She said, yes. She said, well, when we ordained, they both had really beautiful long hair, like down to their their knees, and of course, they had to shave it all off. And so they sold it. You know, I guess there's a, a use for hair. And with the money from selling their two hairs, they bought that Buddha statue. And so now they have it, and it's like 10 or 15 years later, they still the Buddha statue that they have. And their granny and their family was all crying at shaving their hair and becoming nuns, but they were so happy. So they went to Yangon, to Rangoon, to study. And they were studying the suttas. That many nuns in Burma study a lot. They learn Pali, they study the suttas, they study Abhidhamma, and they take this series of tests. The monks and the nuns, it's the same test. It's like a five, seven, ten year process to become, when you finally pass them all, it's called Dhammacharya. And these nuns, they're studying like crazy, you know, and going on alms round and practicing. And so they studied for some years, and then they were thinking, "Well, now we're ready to go to a meditation center and really learn, you know, to wake up." But just then, the Sayadaw from their home village, to whom they, who was sort of supporting them and who was their kind of root guru, you could say, was getting old and sick, and he'd been taking care of some young orphan girls. So he says he writes these two nuns, "Okay, now you have to take care of these ten little girls. I'm sending them to you." Bah, you know. They're like, whoa, we didn't think of that. We're going to go and, and uh, meditate. But as they're telling us this, we're sitting in their little monastery with the 10 little girls that they've been living with and taking care of and teaching Pali and Burmese and English and sewing their clothes and teaching them chanting for the last two, three years. They just did a 180 turn. You know, they said, oh, OK, we'll go fine And they came and they built this little tiny monastery with the help of their brother, and they were totally committed to taking care of these little girls who become little nuns. They're very, very cute little nuns, very sweet, laughing. There's so much love. They're all sitting there while we're talking. And they said, and again, Uttara said with such sincerity, you know, she said, we really, it's so much, we want to be able to offer them the chance of a decent life. Otherwise, they'd just be on the street. They'd be somebody's slave, somebody's servant. So here we're teaching them, you know, we're teaching them to read and write and learn the Dhamma and what it means to be a good person, you know. And it, it, when they grow up, if they want to stay nuns, great, then they can take care and teach the younger ones and we can finally go off and meditate. <laughs> and if they don't want to become nuns, that's fine with us. We we've At least they know how to be good people. And they said, we're totally dedicating our life to this. And this was with so much sincerity, you know? Joy, not just like, okay, but joy to be able to offer this. This is one of, I can't tell you how many examples of nuns that are raising orphan girls like this, or girls whose parents are so poor they beg the nuns to take their kids, even if they only get to see them once a year. And and when you come out of there, you're just so filled like with light. And happiness And these are just quiet, you know, no one's ever going to know them. They're, they're examples of probably hundreds, because I could name you like 10 other nunneries with similar kind of stories. I mean, maybe not the story about the sickness going on. Really, very inspiring and very alive. You can feel it's like a, uh, like a realm of purity of the Sila you know, that you really can feel when you walk in a place like that. So that's another suffering story. Okay, just two more. One, Kama, from the time of the Buddha, she's like the most easy story, immediate waking up kind of teacher, where she uh, was the consort of King Bimbisara. I mean, she wasn't the queen, but the consort. They had lots of wives, lots of consorts. But that was a very prestigious position. And she was very beautiful and very rich and very conceited. So Bimbisara, the king, was one of the followers of the Buddha. And he was, would try to get Kema to come with him to listen. But she said, I don't want to go hear that. He's talking bad about you know wealth and beauty and sense pleasures. I'm not interested in that. So Bimbasar decided to trick her, so he hired a singer and poet to, to compose songs about the beauty of this grove this, where the Buddha was teaching, this beautiful park, this beautiful grove. So there's troubadours strolling around singing this song where Kema's going to hear it. And uh, of course she couldn't resist, so she goes. And I, I, what I like about this story is the way we, I can relate to how we resist hearing the thing that's really going to bring us happiness and freedom. We're holding on to the thing, her beauty, her love of sense pleasure that's actually keeping us suffering. So she goes, and of course, the Buddha knew how to do, teach for everyone, so he, he created with his magic, with his psychic powers, the image of an incredibly beautiful woman, a like hundred times more beautiful than Kema. So she saw it, she's like, wow, she's really beautiful. Then he had it slowly, slowly image age and decay and turn old and the teeth rotted and fall apart and she got it. You know, she really, oh, duh, that's going to happen to me too. And he said, you know, people devoted to physical beauty are bound to the world by this attachment. When you renounce this world of attachment, you're really free. And she got it, and she is one a rare example of a lay person who became an arhan on the spot. On the spot, listening to a Dharma talk. <laughs> became an arhan on the spot. And she became known as the nun with the greatest insight and also a great teacher. And I just want to tell you about the nun that that reminds me of very briefly today, who's called Sister Dipankara. And she is a nun who has been trained uh, by Paok Sayadaw, who's the teacher who's over at the Forest Refuge right now. He's a way of teaching this very deep um, and absorption jhana base and then using that to vipassana. It's one that takes... Many of us could never even complete his program. And if we do, it's months and months. He's over there for four months. We asked him, how's it going the other day? Four months isn't really long enough, you know. So we met Sister Dipankara some years ago she was visiting here, and she was describing the whole process, which we didn't know. I mean, several of us three-month teachers were sitting there listening, and our mouths were just dropping open. (laughs) I I don't have time to go through the whole, but she's describing this amazing process of depth of samadhi and jhana and then vipassana and watching the kalapas in the eye and the earth and the air and the fire and the water breaking up in each little molecule in the eye, on and on. And then she said, this is what she said, that she completed that in a week. (laughs) (laughs) Sister Dipankara, she is a force of nature. So she has now a meditation center in Mameo up in northern Burma. We went and visited her last, last winter. Quite a lovely spot. And she teaches there two months a year, a retreat for Westerners, for foreigners. The rest of the year, she's traveling all around the world teaching. She speaks really good English. But she, I mean, when you're in her presence, she's loving and kind, wants to make sure you have enough to eat. But then she invited us with this great meal, but she didn't eat with us. She then goes off and just is by herself. She's just, Psh. So she comes out and is totally loving, kind, thoughtful, but then she's off and who knows where she is (laughs) in the the day's pleasant abiding, (laughs) a force of nature. So there are still women and men like that with such deep and immediate understanding. I just want you to know that that's existing in this world today. It's not just something that happens at the time of the Buddha. And so I'll just end with one poem from the Buddha's time. from a woman named Uttama. The Buddha taught seven factors of enlightenment. They are ways to find peace, and I have developed them all. I have found what is vast and empty, the unborn. It is what I've longed for. I am a true daughter of the Buddha, always finding joy in peace. So let's just sit quietly and find joy and peace for a moment.